Building Trust in Government is a monthly podcast sponsored by MITRE and its Center for Data-Driven Policy, informing national policy with objective, nonpartisan insights. Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of the podcast series, Building Trust in Government, a conversation about creating outcomes through policy and partnerships. I'm Jim Cook, MITRE's Vice President for Strategic Engagement and Partnerships and the Executive Chair for MITRE's Center for Data-Driven Policy. Today's conversation is going to focus on cybersecurity policy, where we're going to dive in on the implications of the administration's cybersecurity executive order and the Zero Trust Strategy. My guest today is Karen Evans, partner at KENT Partners and Managing Director at the Cyber Readiness Institute. Karen previously ha had a long career in government. Amongst her many roles, she served as CIO at the Department of Homeland Security and eGov Administrator at OMB. Thanks for joining us today, Karen. I'm really excited to be here. We're also joined again today by my colleague Dave Pounder, Executive Director of MITRE's Center for Data-Driven Policy and former Director of Information Technology Management Issues at GAO. Thanks again for being with us today, Dave. Pleasure to be here, Jim. So Karen, let's just jump right in. The Executive Branch Cyber Policies have recently been updated with Executive Order 14028 and the Zero Trust Strategy, amongst others. This focus on cyber is not new. Policy and legislation have been enacted, strategies and plans have been developed and implemented. This has been a major priority for the government and for you throughout your government and private sector roles. So what's different in this EO this time? Well, just the volume of the number of pages of the EO is different because the whole way it was written is very different than the White House normally does policy, right? And so it's very prescriptive. It's also very uh, descriptive. But I think the key pieces in it, which is great, is it took all the different disparate policies and put it into one executive order. So it, it brings it all together into one document, which is really very helpful to departments and agencies. And I think the other thing that's really key in that is there's key places where plans and the actual execution of what agencies are doing is coming directly into the assistant uh, to the president. Um, and that's being reviewed at that level, not just you know coming into OMB and OMB doing some things, but coming right into uh, the National Security Council where it can be reviewed about the agency's performance. So in addition to those enhancements, is there anything that you see about this that represents a change in direction, or does this really build on successes of the past? I think it really builds on successes of the past, but it's also driving uh, a lot of things, trying to drive them to completion. It's one thing to start them, it's another thing to complete them. And it's got very specific timelines in there, which are very helpful, because if you don't put the timelines in there, not that agencies would do this, I'm sure Dave has experienced it, is, is that agencies would drag it out because they can wait out the, the political leadership. And there are some things in there that are really hard to do. That's the reason why they haven't been done before or they haven't been completed. And Jim, if I could add on, you know, build, to Karen's point, building on things of the past, you know, zero trust is a new concept, but when you really look at the foundation of zero trust, you know, strong encryption, strong authentication, it's really building on a lot of things we've done actually over the past several decades. So it's just really trying to take that to the next level. So in the executive order, um, there are requirements that are outlined by the administration, some priorities around budgeting, workforce, and leadership. What do you see, Karen, as the priority areas to focus on so that the agencies get off to the right start and have early successes under this, under this strategy? 
Well, I think Dave hit the nail on the head about building off of foundational activities, right? So zero trust is a buzzword as far as I'm concerned. If you've been doing this, and uh, uh, you know, I, well, I'm sure I'll get a lot of email over this, but um, <laughs> if you've been doing it and you've been moving along and taking into consideration encryption, really looking at architecture work, right, and taking advantage of things that are going on overall, like I've got a transition off of the one networks contract onto the EIS contract, those are your opportunities to re-engineer, right? Or to really take a look at things. If you've bought into the buzzword, like, oh, it's zero trust, then you're looking at the new shiny object. So things that the agencies have been doing all along, and you got to really see it demonstrated when COVID hit, the pandemic hit, for years, we've been talking about modernization and networking and going to the cloud and cloud-first strategy, all these great uh, ideas, right? You actually got to see that work. Nobody thought that the federal government was going to be able to pivot as fast as they could, but all this foundational work, I mean, I had the opportunity to be at DHS when they were doing this stuff, and everybody, all the program people go, oh, that's what you meant about network modernization. That's what you meant about enabling these applications through the cloud. The key to that, though, was, hey, don't forget about the cybersecurity posture. What's the risk posture? How did you do some of those engineering changes? You know, they were being done concurrently, um, and, and you saw some of the effects of that when it happened, for example, when solar winds hit. Mm -hmm. So how does it, how in your opinion, does this help agencies with the development of their strategies, roadmaps, and their sequencing to get down to the execution? Well, I would like to think um, that between the budget process and the policies coming from OMB and a lot of the clarification that has now happened through statute with what is the role of CISA, right? And now you have the National Cybersecurity Director there and how they brought these pieces together that you have clarity in some of the roles and responsibilities to be able to go forward about who's doing policy, who's making sure you have enough resources, and then who's actually responsible for execution to help the agencies to success. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned budgeting. So we do want to talk a little bit about budgeting and workforce. So you've brought up a couple of those points. On the budget front, I know there's two different schools of thought on this. There are people that say there's always more money that's needed, that we're, we're very short in budgets. There's others that say we've got plenty of money, we're just not prioritizing its use. Where do you come down on that issue? So Jim, you shouldn't ask a former OMB <laughs> person about budgeting. I come down on the side that there's more than enough money uh, out there to do the things you're supposed to be doing. Uh, when I was at OMB, and prior to us getting started on this, we were talking about the EGOV Act and how long we've been doing this. It's been 20 years since that act was passed. Mm -hmm. um, it, what I hear from agencies, when you hear the, the uh, statement, this is an unfunded mandate, what I hear is, I don't want to do what you want me to do. I want to continue to do what I want to do. So if you want me to do that, you need to give me more resources because I'm going to continue to do what I want to do. And that's not how OMB does the analysis. OMB looks at what are the resources, what are there, and if you stop 
some of these activities and redirect and merge over this way, you will gain those economies. I know, Dave, you have a lot to yeah. add to there. Jim, I think on the budget front, to Karen's point, the reallocation of the budget is really is what's needed here. Uh, in fact, you know, Karen, I'm going to go back to your OMB days, but there's a lot of reporting to OMB and to Congress that we really need to take a hard look at. What return are we really getting on that reporting? I'm not saying reporting isn't important or also with audits, but I think we need to streamline the reporting and audits and redirect some of those funds to actually protection mechanisms that are needed with the new EO and the zero trust policies. So, and I'd like to build off of that. I know when I was at DHS this last go around, I was really looking at a lot of the processes that were in place, right? And what data is really being used? And so, and who's using it for what decision making? And if you're not using it for decision making, then why are we collecting it? There, there's processes in place that allow you to stop it. So I'll give you this really great example. We at OCIO were collecting data because you had to do certain things with it to meet OMB reporting requirements. So then if you extrapolate that out and it's just, a, and you think about it in the context of the budget, it's just a million dollars in my one budget. Okay, now multiply that out for the components in DHS. It ends up being $34 million for a process that when I really dug into it, we weren't using all the data. We weren't using all the data. The components weren't using all the data. And to top it all off, OMB's not using all the data. So I, you know, in my wisdom, uh, challenged it a little bit and told OMB, I'm going to stop at this one level unless you guys decide that you need more. And we put a lot of integrity into the process to a certain level of that data because then it has to go public, right? And the dashboard and GAO uses it, the public uses it, everybody uses it. So that veracity was there. But to go down into a lot of these other processes and to build that out, um, it, it's not cost effective. So is that the the policies that you're referring to, are those primarily driven from within OMB? Is that affected by legislation? What would you change? Do you think con the congressional interest in cyber risk-based budgeting can help in this regard? Set the, set, set the focus in the right areas? So the short answer is yes, 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 yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Um, because there's a lot of information right. that the agencies have, right? I think it's laudable if you want to go to risk-based budgeting. I mean, I, that's like music to my ears, but I, I would say that that's going to take a maturity process going forward that agencies, and then the other part of that issue is, will Congress accept a secretary's decision about how much uh, level of risk are they willing to live with? Because Congress might not be willing to live with that same level of risk that a secretary is. Mm -hmm. And how then the budgeting happens around those resources. I think if you can justify it saying, here's the trade-offs that I've made, which is a lot of what we tried to build that foundational work on when I was at OMB, uh, then I think you should be held accountable for if something happens if you make those decisions. But that's not quite how the process works right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Jim, I will add, you know, this notion of risk-based budgeting. I think what Congress has in mind here is to really look at the vulnerabilities and threats that are out there and let those budgets be driven more by the threat. And historically, that's, we, we haven't really been there. So I think that's a big move. And I think that a requirement where, that Congress is trying to push right now is a move in the right direction. Good. Well, we're going to come back to the legislative uh, piece of this in, in, in a bit. But right now, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be discussing the importance of the cyber workforce and leadership and how best to update cyber legislation. I'm Jim Cook, and you're listening to the Building Trust in Government podcast.
Policymakers are faced with turning workable ideas into actionable policies. MITRE's Center for Data-Driven Policy delivers objective, evidence-based, nonpartisan insights to government policymaking. We work in the public interest and serve as a bridge across government, industry, and academia. MITRE applies a whole-of-nation approach to our biggest challenges in national security, science and technology, cyber, and domestic policy. At MITRE, our mission is solving problems for a safer world. Discover how at MITRE.org slash Policy Center. Welcome back to the Building Trust in Government podcast. I'm Jim Cook. Today we're here with Karen Evans and Dave Pounder talking about the administration's cybersecurity executive order and, and zero trust strategy. So Karen, we touched a little bit on workforce in the previous segment. What about the cyber workforce? The NAPA, NAPA recently completed a study to call for a national cyber director to take on a more prominent role in this area. You co-led that study. What were the key takeaways that you'd like to share? So it was an opportune time to do that. Congress asked for uh, NAPA to really look at the cyber workforce issues because we've been dealing with this again. This is another issue that has been out there and uh, really have been trying to deal with what are the gaps, what are the skill sets, how do you move forward? And Congress really is into it. If, if one of the one thing, key takeaways that everybody can um, really get their mind around is cybersecurity, especially cyber workforce issues are very bipartisan, which is great, and you know, especially in this environment, it's wonderful. The key takeaways in there is that there's a lot of work that has been done. For example, the National Institute of Standards and Technology has done a lot of work under the NICE framework. There are a lot of really great efforts. What, my, uh, what the panel looked at is really looking at the difference of um, collaboration and then you know with cooperation and you can start talking about coordination you can use all these different c words but what also happened in the middle of the study was the establishment of the national Cybersecurity directorate and that office and then the confirmation of chris inglis into that position um, the good news for the cyber workforce is, is that chris has been working on this just probably just as long as i have if not longer and, uh, and, and he's committed to it. And so there, there are a lot of things, but the biggest thing that we recommended was a national strategy. And we were very clear about what a national strategy is. Because through the work, when people talked about that, they were talking about federal workforce versus private sector workforce. And then there's the contractors that support the federal workforce. So we said, no, national strategy and not just focused on critical infrastructure. Not, it's a national strategy for the United States. And so we said that's what really needs to be looked at. And so if you, you follow up on a lot of these things, and we just had an event earlier um, on April 5th about this as a follow-on, and Chris Inglis talks about the few, the many, mm -hmm. and all. And what I think has happened in the past is we get very focused on the few, which are like, the forensics analysis, you know, the real high intelligence uh, folks in the agencies, when we really need to be focused on the all and the many, which would then help make all boats float up higher. So there, there was a lot in there, but the other piece, which I always like to talk about, is the Bureau of Cyber Statistics. And um, because when we looked at the data, and, and the people talk about CyberSeq and 500,000, jobs and do we really know if those are the right jobs based on the right skill categories. I mean, we have a framework in the federal government. We have legislation around that that deals with information quality. It wouldn't be hard for a Bureau of Cyber Statistics to really track 
these labor categories. And, you know, there's one labor category that's tracked by Department of Labor, but you could really track all the different skill sets that are needed and have um, veracity in the numbers. Karen, you mentioned the National Cyber Director position. And, uh, you, well, first of all, you had a reputation when you were at OMB of, of getting engaged. You were much more than just a policy maker. You actually got engaged and facilitated some of the implementation. So with positions like Inglis's position or the federal CISO position, what does it really take to get out of that policy shop mentality and to really help agencies implement the policies that are in place? Because you mentioned they're voluminous and a bit of a challenge, but how do you best pursue that in your opinion? So I've been asked a lot in the past and, and still to this day, like what made you successful? I think um, one of the big things was my operational background. And so it's one thing to issue a policy, which, um, you know, a, ten a tendency of OMB is to issue the policy. It's another thing to actually be at the agencies and trying to interpret what OMB means. And the other thing is, is like, if, if you haven't run operations and then you get a policy, you're kind of like, oh, okay, I can comply with the policy and send all the paperwork in and still do what I want to do operationally, right? So... Um, so I used to cut agencies off at the pass. I was probably their worst nightmare, right? Because I knew how I used to fly under the radar screen, send what I needed to at, for the department to meet compliance and still do what I want to do. And so um, because you have a boss that's down in that component that expects operational results. And so you have to do it. Um, but I also had a boss at, um, at OMB at that time who really was into management and making things better. So he held me accountable. I mean, he would tell people, I was under a performance plan, and you know, a lot of uh, political people aren't necessarily under a performance plan. He put us under performance plans, and then he talked about my performance publicly, which <laughs> was like, you know, I mean, I'm highly competitive. So, and, you know, we, what I did with the CIO Council, we published those reports. I said, this is my performance plan. And they didn't believe me and, until I showed them my actual performance plan. And so, you know, there's when we talked about that cascading effect, there was a lot of like, hey, if I am being held accountable, so are you. And we tied it into the SES's performance plans. So, I mean, you haven't lived until you have to tell a political official that a career CIO shouldn't get their SES bonus because mm -hmm. they didn't meet the numbers. And they said, well, he's a really nice guy. I'm like, yeah, he is a nice guy. Or, you know, I thought we were friends. Well, we are friends, but you're in charge of that initiative and your own agency didn't meet its goals. I can't give you a green. I mean, it just, I said, you didn't earn it. I mean, those things were, I mean, they, they sound minute little mm -hmm. details, but um, there was a lot that was put into that scorecard about how does an agency progress how do you show those outcomes? And then how do you really make it meaningful for the individual? I'm telling you that one SES never missed a milestone again after they didn't get their bonus. But I mean, that's, and we had the evidence. That I think, Dave, the clear piece of this was evidence to be able to give to the leadership, but the other part was facilitating their success. So if, if a CIO was having a problem in their mm -hmm. department or agency, we went to the deputy secretary and said, hey, you got to move these obstacles out of their way if you really want to achieve this. So it's not just oversight. It's about facilitation and being somewhat supportive of delivering on the mission and implementing the policies. So we really looked at ourselves as the leader of that business line. 
right, the facilitator of that business line. And, um, and what do we need policy, what do we need legislation, what do we need budget, right? And then how do we make these key things successful? And what are the gaps in those departments and agencies? And then can we do it? Do we need to help them do it? You know, does the secretary just need to do something in that department or agency? Um, you know, we laugh, people laugh about some of the stories that we had about the scorecards. Like my boss used to hand out little green cards, or I still have them. And they're marked and dated for what I received a green card for, right? And there was nothing more embarrassing than being in a big interagency meeting and he'd throw down a red card, right? Which meant all discussion stops. <laughs> and then you had to regroup. I mean, there was nothing worse. I, I don't have a red card. I have a green, I have a lot of green cards, but I never got a red card. But like, you didn't want to be in a meeting where he threw down a red card on the table. Like, it's simple things like that that really moved the whole federal, you know, executive branch forward. So Karen, let's go back to the legislative question again. Both the Senate and the House are working through revisions to the Federal Information Security Modernization Act, or FISMA. What do you think needs to be done to align these bills with the executive branch policies and to move FISMA away from pure compliance to something that's really focused on operational support, i.e. identifying threats and doing risk management? So this is always going to be the challenge going forward, Jim, I think, in anything that Congress evaluates. And, and that's just a challenge. And I think, uh, Dave, based on your role as GAO, you saw a lot of this too, right? So there's a positive aspect to whatever they want to see gets done, right? Uh, the negative aspect is, is it getting done because it's just compliance or is it getting done because the agency really embraces the outcome? And so um, that's always been the challenge, right? And, and so like the scorecards that Congress does on multiple fronts, like a lot of the stories that I was just sharing, that's what led to FATAR, right? That's what led to changes in FISMA. Um, but it's still, I'm gonna go all the way back to our initial piece about zero trust. It really is a culture leadership issue. And, and how is that leadership and that culture uh, encouraged? Even with risk-based budgeting that you're talking about, that, it's a culture change that has to happen within the executive branch to realize the outcomes that Congress wants in legislation. And the more prescriptive Congress is in that legislation, I believe the more you're gonna drive compliance, not outcome. Yeah. So Jim, I just to, and I agree with all the compliance discussion, we need to get out of the compliance world. So I think first, there's two, two points I'd like to make with the existing FISMA legislation. First of all, Streamlining the reporting and oversight would help with this compliance mentality. We need to find a better way to measure our cyber posture with the right metrics and not this, these excessive reports. The other thing that we really need to do when you look at FISMA, FISMA took a lot that was already there and then it focused a lot on incident and ransomware reporting, what I would call the tail end. And I think when you look at the administration's pro, uh, policies with the, with the EO and with zero trust, it gets more to the left of an incident, the protection mechanism. So are we securing our supply chains? Are we uh, reducing the vulnerable legacy systems? Are we implementing zero trust? Those types of things that the administration is, I think, leading on right now from a policy perspective, that needs to be weaved into the FISMA bills as they exist today. Well, Karen, thanks for being here today and sharing your insights and for your leadership on this topic throughout your government and your private sector career. And Dave, I also want to thank you, as always, for joining us today. Check back with us each month. We've got some important topics lined up 
for following episodes, including defense acquisition reform and customer experience, amongst many others. I'm Jim Cook, and you're listening to Building Trust in Government, brought to you by MITRE's Center for Data-Driven Policy on Federal News Network. Building Trust in Government is sponsored by MITRE and its Center for Data-Driven Policy, bringing evidence-based insights to government policymaking. Discover more at MITRE.org policycenter policy center.